Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, especially if you are new, you're visiting, maybe uh, you're returning after a long trip. We do want to welcome you. And as always, for any of us here, new or not, if there are any questions you may have, uh, comments, concerns, clarifications about anything you see here, about anything you hear here, uh, questions about the gospel, about who Jesus is, uh, why we do what we do, um, even anything that you're going through personally, please do not hesitate to come and speak with me after service is over or with any one of the other elders. Uh, Pastor Dave, who read scripture reading this morning, is an elder. Uh, Josh right here is an elder. And... I don't see any other elders at this service, but please come and speak to us. Uh, Sunday mornings are a great time for connection, for an extended talk, or even just a few-minute catch-up. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke, and we are in Luke chapter 14 and verse 1. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14 is our passage today as we continue our study through the book of Luke. And that passage is on page 873, if you are using a church Bible, page 873, Luke chapter 14 and verse 1. And before we look at our text together, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, uh, which continues now in the hearing of your word, and, and we ask that you would make this message uh, clear, uh, that it would be accurate uh, to the text, and that it would be powerful in each of our lives, that, that though there may be things in it that do not uh, naturally appeal to us, uh, Lord, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would you make this passage like honey to our lips and, and its wisdom sweet to our souls? Would you please glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, more and more in our hearts that he might become everything to us? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the greatest paradoxes that we find within the gospel is what we heard in our scripture reading in Philippians chapter 2, that the way that Jesus is exalted is by first Jesus being humiliated, that the way he goes up is by first coming down, and that his ascension comes after this steep descending lower and lower and lower on his own accord. And, and there's a similar phenomenon in the conversion, the new birth, and also uh, in the ongoing life of the Christian an initial conversion that, that we don't come to God saying, look at all that I can do and all of what I can offer and how capable I am and how easy to love and how much better I can be than the other people around me. No, we come to God confessing, I have nothing to offer. Uh, there's an initial abject humility there that by the Holy Spirit, we're able to see ourselves a little bit more clearly and a little bit more accurately that, I, that I'm weak, uh, I'm sinful, I'm broken, I'm, I'm living the wrong way, and if salvation were to rest even just an ounce on me, I could not accomplish even that. There's this holy condescension in our perception of ourselves in the new birth, that for salvation to occur at all, I need you to save me. I need you to do everything. I am incapable, lowly, but by grace, I want to live the right way. And then it is that the Lord comes and lifts us to himself with his mighty saving arm, that that ascension of sorts comes after we have condescended and come to understand our sinfulness in a more accurate life, uh, light. And our ongoing Christian living then is just like Philippians chapter 2. In light of this grace, in light of Jesus' own life, uh, therefore we live in this humility before him and also in this humility before other people, that we might even consider the needs of others as uh, above our own needs, not as an end in and of itself, but because God is going to lift and exalt the humble in due time. 
Exaltation comes after humiliation. Eternal glorification is going to come later. Many who are first now shall be last, and last now who will be first. And this paradoxical principle, which is quite the opposite of what we see in the world of, of being true to yourself and boasting about your achievements and flaunting what you have and bragging about your capabilities and advertising your potential in this sort of rat race, this paradoxical principle, which is quite the opposite of what we see in the world, is actually what it is that characterizes the kingdom of God and those who enter into it. We see what Matthew writes in Matthew 5's uh, Beatitudes about the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But this is a principle which clashes against all the principles we see in the present passing world. And is also a clash uh, which we see within our passage this morning. We have here the Son of God eating a meal opposite those religious ones who just love to exalt themselves. We have in our text the kingdom of God coming into conflict with the kingdom of man embodied in first century Jewish religion. And we read in verse 1 uh, the context of Jesus' teaching on humility, which is another healing. Verse 1 we read, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Uh, here it is. We have a conflict at, at the meal table between the son of God and prideful humanity. Uh, another clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, so to speak. Jesus sits opposite first century Jewish religion, and we see here the hardness of heart towards Jesus and what it is that he stands for. Now, the enemies of Jesus here, they are setting a trap for him. What they want to do is catch Jesus doing something illegal, something he's not supposed to be doing. And if they can catch him, then they can discredit him as a lawbreaker and, and put a halt to his growing influence. And I think this is an intentional trap because they're watching Jesus carefully in verse 1, and Jesus responds to their thoughts even when they haven't opened their mouths in verse 3. This is also not the first time they've tried something like this. They have been trying to trip Jesus up because he is not the kind of Messiah we want. He doesn't come and applaud us or glorify our efforts. He spends time with the lowly, the, the tax collectors, the sinners, the fishermen. He, he welcomes harlots and the most notorious to himself. These people, they don't move the needle at all for us. They are the riffraff that we wouldn't be caught dead among. They are simply not what Jesus is about. And so they invite Jesus over to a Pharisee's house, and they place this man with an ailment called dropsy, which is otherwise called edema. This is a buildup of fluid within the body. And the condition of this man must have been severe enough that you would notice immediately when you looked at him, that just the sight of him would elicit some kind of reaction. But for the Pharisees, uh, he is just but the bait. And I don't know that he is uh, the bait, but they are using him to lure Jesus to do something they can use against Jesus. And the trap is such, what the Pharisees have done with the Sabbath is they've made all these rules and traditions to lock that Sabbath up. And they were like the policemen looking to arrest people on the Sabbath because you don't work on the Sabbath. God created on days one through six and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, you better rest on the Sabbath. And if Jesus is not resting on the Sabbath, 
then they can proclaim that he's working against the word of God and against God himself. But there's nothing within the word of God that says you can't heal on the Sabbath. There's no prohibition against helping someone on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists for our blessing and our benefit. The Pharisees, they lost the heart of the Sabbath itself. They don't really care about the Sabbath at all. I mean, they're working right here to plot against Jesus on it. But let's take a moment here and and assess the situation and even the mentality of the Pharisees. Uh, Really, the only way that this trap works is if we know that Jesus is going to come to our house, which means we know enough about Jesus that even the ones who want to discredit him, even the ones who want to trap him, even the ones who want Jesus dead, we know that even if we invite Jesus into our house, he's going to come into our house because that is exactly who Jesus is. He is one who will even visit his enemies. And we know that if we place someone with great need in front of Jesus, Jesus is going to be compassionate. He's very predictable. We know this about Jesus' character, huge heart for those who are in the worst kind of need. That is exactly who he is. He's compassionate upon the less fortunate. And we also know that Jesus has the power to heal this man. He has authority over the human body. He can reverse all kinds of ailments, leprosy, paralysis, and whatnot. The evidence is everywhere. He can heal what doctors cannot heal, and he can do it undeniably within a moment. Jesus is miraculously powerful. I mean, this trap only works because they know the heart of Jesus, they know the compassion of Jesus, and they know the power of Jesus. This trap only works because they know Jesus. So much to the point that he has become predictable to them. I mean, don't you think that these truths alone should have melted them already? These are the things that testify to them exactly who Jesus is as a Messiah. Shouldn't this list of truths have brought them to repentance? But sadly, it does not. They reject Jesus no matter what kind of proof of character and proof of power he demonstrates. Because the issue is not the human mind. The issue is a human heart which really precedes the mind and which can be so obstinate and prideful against the things of God. And yet it is here that Jesus still wants to do good to them by showing them the very insides of their heart. And so he asked two questions which are meant to search that heart. The first comes before the miracle. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And the answer should be an easy yes, it is lawful. But the Pharisees are stuck because if they say yes, well, then our trap's not going to work. And Jesus is going to heal, and we can't discredit him uh, with a crime. But if we say no, I mean, this guy's right here in front of us. Everyone's going to think we're heartless and cruel, which they are heartless and cruel. But they didn't want that reputation. And so their trap for Jesus has really trapped them with just a single question, which is why I think they remain sinfully silent. The second question comes after the miracle. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? I mean, here Jesus is just using simple logic as to ascertain the heart and the intents of the Sabbath and the heart of God himself. Is the Sabbath really for the good of humanity? Do you think that if your son fell into a well, that's not a minor injury falling into a well. If your son fell into a well, battered, broken, bruised, do you think that God would want you to say, son, I'd love to help you, but you're going to have to wait until tomorrow. Because God does not want me to help you on the Sabbath day. Remember his heart. 
He worked on days one through six, and he rested on the seventh day. So I'm going to go rest, and you hang in there, and I'll see you in the morning. No one is going to do that for a son. No one's going to do that even for a creature like an ox. An ox is valuable, and an injured ox could be dead by the morning. Do we really all believe here, Jesus is saying, that this is what the Sabbath is for and what it is not for? Why is it then that you are willing to make an exception for your child and an exception even for your animal and not this man who's been suffering right in front of you? This is an appeal to the heart of the Pharisees here that the issue, again, is not the evidence, the character, the power of Jesus. It's all undeniable. Otherwise, you wouldn't even have made this trap. Don't you think that the issue might be your own hearts? He's appealing to his enemies here and again, you'd hope that there'd be some sign of repentance, but, but sadly there's not. For again, right after question one and now after question two, they still remain sinfully silent. Now, brothers and sisters, the, the ultimate reason for why people do not believe and do not put their trust in Jesus is, is not because of evidence per se. The issue is not the logic that happens in the mind. The, the issue is actually right here in the heart. People don't believe in Jesus because they don't want to believe in Jesus. The issue is a battle that occurs right here because belief, unbelief, at the end of the day, is a hardness against Jesus and what it is that he stands for, which is why there is this conflict and clash with what Jesus is preaching about the kingdom and what Jesus is embodying about the kingdom and what ultimately will be characteristic of all who are citizens of it. And Jesus continues to address this heart of humanity with a couple of visuals. Look with me in verse 7. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus' thesis here is everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. This, again, is a Christian paradox that to move up, we move down. And to ascend, we first condescend, which we see in the life of Jesus and which must also be true in each of his followers who decide to pick up a cross and follow after him, that our exaltation comes after a humiliation. Now, this is the same meal, this is the same house, the same Pharisees and lawyers who made the trap for Jesus and couldn't answer any of his questions. And now, just as Jesus has been watched by them, Jesus is now watching them. And what he sees is a bunch of people jockeying for position. They're trying to get the best seats because in this culture, where you sat at fancy events like these is what you are worth. You are your status, which is actually not much different uh, in almost any human context throughout history that you are your status. That's your worth. And the Son of God is taking all of it in and he's observing the human heart through their actions. And then Jesus gives this kind of ridiculous visual in a parable of someone sitting where they shouldn't be sitting. And then afterwards, they're humiliated in front of everyone because they chose to exalt themselves first and are therefore humbled next. You know, last weekend, uh, we had the honor of attending a wedding. Brent and Carrie, their members here, 
There was this beautiful venue in Waimea Valley, and, and there was this huge tree over the ceremony site. Uh, and next to that ceremony site was this massively tall structure with the ceremony site in view. And there was a setup of tables and chairs on two separate tiers. And there was, in the most prominent position of facing the crowd, a table for the bride and for the groom. And the closest tables to that one were filled with the closest relationships, which consisted mostly of family who the bride and the groom expressly wanted to honor. Now, can you imagine if I plopped right down at the table reserved for the bride and the groom, looking at all the people staring at me and making myself at home, and then as the music is playing and bride and groom are reintroduced and everyone is cheering and they're dancing their way in, can you visualize the scene as they come to their chairs and I'm sitting right in them? making myself at home as if that spot was for me. Utterly awkward. <laughs> uh, embarrassing. Sure, I enjoyed a place of honor for a few minutes, but the disgrace and the shame and the humiliation afterwards, I don't know that my own wife would be able to look me in the eye after that. <laughs> and that is precisely Jesus' point in thesis, as he's literally watching people jockeying for a position in this very short and passing life that a lot of people are going to spend their mere moments on earth trying to enjoy that top spot and try and make themselves at home here without a care that a time is coming that those who live for such selfish, saddest seeking and pour blood, sweat, and tears to achieve higher levels of early attainment are going to be utterly humiliated when all is said and done. I mean, these Pharisees and lawyers who study the Bible with all their might, not really to know God, but so they can appear uh, holy and ascend in this religious world and take their seats of honor as the experts. And they wear these long robes and say their long fancy prayers in public and they love the best seats in the synagogue and they like to have these drawn out conversations in and around town where they can be recognized for who they are by all the people of the town. We have these Pharisees and lawyers who really are using God to love themselves. We have Pharisees and lawyers who are more concerned with which chair am I going to sit in? And I got to be that guy over here and this person over there to make sure that my place at the table is a little bit higher than them. We have a group of people more concerned with where they place in the world than the fact that the Son of God is right before them, gracious and kind, strong and compassionate, who is merciful and powerful to the lame, the broken, the sinful, of which we all are. They refuse Jesus Christ and all that it is he stands for because they want a shinier new seat at this dinner table, which will be over in just a few moments. And that, brothers and sisters, is the kingdom of the world. It's going to be over in just a few moments. Please do not fall for it. All of this which sparkles, the sparkle is such which makes Jesus Christ in our eyes look rather dull. But the gospel is such, the kingdom of God is such, that its citizens and God's people look right through that sparkle and they understand that the way to rise is to begin low, to ascend is to first descend, and that God's exaltation of his bride and his people is going to come after a momentary humiliation in this very short and passing world of which we should not make ourselves at home in it. Do you believe it? The concept is easy to understand. Jesus' thesis is quite simple. But do you really believe that this is true at all? 
I mean, if I were to ask you how you would define a successful life, what would be your answer? How would you define a life that is considered great? How we answer that question really, really matters. There are two people that I can think of in Luke thus far who are called great explicitly. Luke chapter 115, and speaking of John the Baptist, the angel is telling his parents of his upcoming birth, and the angel says that he will be great before the Lord. Now, what did John the Baptist look like? He, he wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. Where did he live? Out in the boonies of the wilderness. I mean, most of us don't want to eat that, and we don't want to live there. There's nothing glamorous about either. There's quite a bit of humiliation when speaking of Jesus' earthly existence. And he spent his final days in a jail cell before a crooked king beheads him because of a fragile ego. But why then is John called great? I mean, we see it all over cars, a sticker, he greater than I, right? There's stores, signs, uh, T-shirts to display his life's motto that Jesus must increase and I must decrease, John 3.30, that I will spend my life shining the light upon someone else other than myself. I'm not even worthy to untie his slippers. I mean, John, he sat way, way in the back in the kitchen of that wedding, and where do you think he is sitting now, brothers and sisters? That he will be great before the Lord, which was foretold even before he lived his life of humiliation. And he is great by the grace of God because he did not spend his time on earth in vain. The second person called great in Luke thus far is in the same chapter 1 of Luke and in verse 32 speaking of Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. This is the son who touches lepers. This is the son who seeks to save the lost. This is the one who comes to the broken and serves the sick and the sinful. And where do we find Jesus thus far in Luke's narrative? I mean, when we think about the narrative over the last year plus that we've been studying, he has all kinds of power and grace. I mean, he can multiply food for thousands of people with just a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread. He can heal disease in an instant. He can even raise the dead at a funeral. You don't like the weather? He can stop a storm with a single sentence. I mean, if Jesus were all about the now and about the best chair today, I mean, with this kind of gifting and potential, start a hospital. You can make a ton of money. COVID what? Maximize your gifts. Create a chain of restaurants with such low overhead and the supply chain is never going to really be threatened by anything. You can just multiply and make more. I mean, you can move the masses of people with your oratory skill. I mean, look at all of this potential. And yet, where is it that we find Jesus? He's at a table in front of his enemies, appealing to their hearts and teaching them about himself and his kingdom, even though he knows they're going to reject him. He's warning them about the humiliation to come, even though he knows that nothing's going to come of it. He's beckoning them to just look at him and understand the beauty of who he is. Where is it that we find Jesus in the midst of our text? He is actually on the way to Jerusalem so that he might be arrested, that he might be beaten, mocked, stripped, whipped, and put up on a cross to die for his sins. No. He's going to Jerusalem so that he might give his life as a ransom for the many that he might sacrifice himself in our place for the sins of me and the sins of you. And yet, where is he right now? He is exalted to the right hand of the Father, 
and soon to return for his bride, who he will exalt in due time. Do you look upon him and see beauty? Do you look upon Jesus and do you want to be like him? It does take quite a bit of faith to really believe what we believe, doesn't it? To desire with our hearts that lower place today, believing that a higher place comes later. I mean, you can't do that unless Jesus Christ is really beautiful to you and you really, really want to walk in his footsteps. To love humility rather than the pride of life, you can't do that unless the Son of God becomes more and more everything to you. Now listen to John Piper on this passage about Jesus. He says, he's been sitting there watching them come in, and what does he look for? How they are dressed? Where they are from? What are their jobs? No, he looks for what they love. Jesus always watches until he knows where our treasure is because where your treasure is is where your heart is and Jesus wants your heart. What does Jesus think about the guests whose treasure is the praise of men? In short, he thinks they will go to hell if their values don't change. Now, is that going too far? Is the issue really that serious about humility and pride? about condescension and exaltation. I don't think it actually is going too far. I mean, look at the scene. We have people fighting for their own status who are blind to the glory of God right in front of them because they are preoccupied with their own little glory instead. And these fat egos are not going to fit through the narrow door that leads to life, which Jesus describes two passages ago. The main verbs in these verses are passives. Either we will be humbled or we will be exalted by God, one or the other. Because in the final judgment and the assessment of each of our lives, it will be God who humbles us eternally, or it will be God who exalts us the same. And in his kingdom, self-centered arrogance, pride, status, idolatry, self-admiration, self-exaltation will finally be damned, which is why Jesus pleads with those here with a visual and a parable that no one ought to forget, that we take the lowest seat, and let God be the one to exalt you. You know, there's a, a lot of families here with young children. And I think it is, uh, having young ones of my own, that how we raise them really gives us a pretty accurate window into our hearts as well. As what we want them to become shows us what we really value. You know, I read a quote somewhere this week, last week, and I can't remember where, and I can't even remember who said it. I just remember roughly the gist of it, but it went something like this. How you define greatness... How you define success for your children is your discipleship of them. How would you define greatness and success? I mean, what do you praise your kids for? They score the most points when they get the best. What do you guide them to? When you want to list out your hopes and your dreams for your kids, I mean, you already know them, I know. What are they? Which side of this meal table are you wanting your children to sit at? Which side are you leading them towards? We naturally will raise self-glorifiers if we aren't intentional to raise self-deniers. And for those of us without children, what side of the table are you training yourself to want to sit at? What, what is your five-year plan and your end goals of your career? You know, th these are not optional questions for the Christian life. These are not supplementary things that we can get to and think through later. They really are, and they really reveal what kind of kingdom it is that we are living for now.
God's or man's? And what kingdom we will enter finally? Verse 12, we continue. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There is a way to give that's not really about giving, but about getting, because when I scratch your back, I know you're going to go scratch mine later. And perhaps one of the most striking and compelling proofs of a truly humble heart who understands the gospel is serving those who cannot ever pay you back. As Jesus is looking at all of the guests, he already knows that these people invite to give and to serve only those who will give and serve them in return. The repayment happens right here in this life. That is just the way that the world works. What Jesus is saying in stark contrast to the way that the world works is to invite and to serve those who can't ever pay you back in this life. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you know, nowadays with social media, you invite these, you take a picture, you post it, and you do get some kind of glory. Wow, look at how compassionate he is. Everyone knows how awesome that person is. Applause, applause, applause. No, but in this first century, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. The prevalent theology in this era was if you were poor and crippled and lame or blind, it must be that God's getting you back for something. It must be because you did something really wicked or harbored some deep, deep sin in your heart. You must have done something really, really bad to deserve this lot in life. And therefore, you made your bet. Now you have to lay in it. Jesus is saying, invite those. You don't get any reward right now when you serve these. They can't pay you back in this life. Nobody cares about them. Lower yourself to their level, which is the most striking and compelling proof of humility to serve those who can't get you back. But who is it that will get you back? At the resurrection, the Lord himself will repay you more than you know, because if that resurrection is real, if it is really coming, then it changes how we live today, brothers and sisters. And I wonder how much of your day-to-day thinking really involves looking forward to the resurrection. Most of us think about what I got to do this week and where I got to cart the kids to and what I'm supposed to do at my job. And maybe we think the next three to five years, where we need to be as a family. I think it is that we ought to think about the resurrection a lot more than we do. We spend so much of our efforts thinking about this year and the next year. And frankly, very little thinking about the next 10,000 years or 30,000 years. And not many of us throw banquets, but we do have dinners, and we do have those times where we decide who it is that we're going to talk to, who it is that we're going to try and listen to. And banquet or not, dinner or not, the principle is still the same. Perhaps it is that God is asking you to go speak to someone in your community, to go speak to someone in this room that perhaps is perceived as the least important. Invite people to a meal. Take someone out that isn't going to upgrade your life later. You know, we're often tempted to only give what we can get back. We do this quick calculation that we're so good at. We look at people and often think whether we admit it or not. What can I gain from this relationship rather than what can I give in this relationship? We're naturally inclined to only spread our loves to those who are easy to love, like considerate family and friends and neighbors who reciprocate 
and not the more difficult ones. Imagine if Jesus Christ loved people the way we did. Uh, where would we all be? He gives to those who could never reciprocate. He loves the most difficult ones. There's something about each of our hearts that has an inclination to do only what is comfortable and avoid everything that isn't comfortable because we want that earthly payout and not think about the beauty of Jesus and the resurrection which is to come. But in the kingdom of God, it is such that its citizens on earth want to be gracious to the helpless, the poor, the marginalized, the ones who are the difficult ones because our treasure is not here. Our treasure is yet to come. And I don't think that means we get repaid in dollars, but that our lives lived to the glory of Christ in the loving of others will be a life that we will never regret eternally. And it will be a life that we will be thankful we lived by his grace, which resounds in the ages to come and for all time in a way that that initial cost and that initial humiliation is but a faint memory of the exaltation of the people of God who really believed Jesus Christ and saw a beauty in him that has no rival here, that our highest ambition is to be like him and to glorify him in all that we say and do, that he is the one who must increase even if that means we are the ones who decrease because to ascend is really to descend and the way up is by first coming down. And the question of the morning really is, do you believe this? Do we really believe what it is that we believe? Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for this pastor. We just thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I mean, even as we look at this passage and, and think about the life he lived, I mean, every moment he was watched by his enemies, every second he's trying to be tripped up. People are trying to attack him, accuse him, uh, the devil, the world, the, the people. Lord, that's, that's the life you gave your son to live. And yet he endured that humiliation through it all. He hung up on the cross for us and for our sin that we might be forgiven, that we might be washed clean, that we might be given a new life in him towards you. Father, may you, by your spirit, make Jesus Christ so beautiful in our eyes that everything else looks pale in comparison. Would it be, God, that that we would decrease and that he might increase so that the watching world might look at our church and this family and understand something about his good and gracious character and the exaltation which is to come. Lord, help us to believe what it is we say we believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.